What a beautiful melody. And what a beautiful apartment. So spacious for a comedian. I mean, it's almost it's almost surreal. Jonah, how did we end up in Jerry Seinfeld's place? I I, I don't know, but now that you mentioned it, I actually can't remember. I, 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 I can't remember anything before today. I mean, before this moment, Dave. I mean, I want this door open, Dave. Elaine? Did you hear that? Dave, come look. Come look out this window. It's just a scrim. Yes, George. What is it that you want? That voice. Is that Jerry? No, man. I don't think we're in New York City. I think you're right, Jonah. I think, I think you and me were trapped in Jerry's mind. Just like the entirety of Seinfeld. Warn me before you we do episodes like this. I gotta stretch first. I gotta prepare mentally. I think. Jonah, at 40, you gotta stretch before everything. I'm 39. Now, close enough. This is Galaxy Brains. And today it's a festivus for the rest of us, baby. We are talking Seinfeld with comedy expert, Seinfeld Supervan, and host of the Good One podcast, Jesse David Fox. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's annoying neighbor, Jonah Ray. Each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question literally everything with the interrogation brain, and after swimming through the filth of our mental East River, arrive untouched by shrinkage on the blessed shores of the galaxy brain. And by that, I mean the Upper West Side, the setting of today's topic, Seinfeld. Uh- Dave, that's not quite right. No, no, Jonah, I'm serious. Shrinkage doesn't affect all men, just no, 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 ma- no, 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 no. The East River's on the east side of Manhattan. To get to the Upper West Side from there, we'd have to take the new Second Avenue line up to 96 and then transfer it to the B86 bus through the park. Of course, I mean, if you want to take the B81, you can get a nice view of the Belvedere Castle, which in the autumn is really delightful to see. Yada, 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 Jonah. Today, the master of our domain is Vulture's senior editor and host of the Good One podcast, Jesse David Fox. Dave, if you ever elaine me again, I will throw your mic into the East River. But we're in L.A. I'll get on a plane for it. I got Delta Sky Miles to burn. Then I'm coming with you to share the load. We can upgrade to first class to ensure maximum snugability, buddy. Before Jonah and I journey to early 90s Manhattan, we need to load up our mental metro cards with a segment called Logic Brain. If you didn't grow up with Seinfeld, it's hard to overstate how important this show was. The brainchild of 90s hipster comedian Jerry Seinfeld and his cantankerous buddy Larry David, Seinfeld was a metafictional version of Jerry's life told through the trappings of a traditional multi-camera sitcom. 
What made Seinfeld so unique at the time was that it didn't trade in the usual sitcom tropes while still being an amazing sitcom. It wasn't about a family or set in a workplace. In fact, the only time you ever saw Jerry at work in most episodes was the cold open where he'd be on stage telling a joke that was loosely connected to the plot for that week's show. As the writers would go on to admit during the incredibly meta season four arc about Jerry and his best friend George creating a sitcom, Seinfeld was about nothing. It was four people, only nominally friends, getting involved in hijinks that usually stemmed from their social ineptitude, selfishness, and inability to express themselves honestly. In short, these people sucked. They were dicks, which is why Larry David's polarizing final episode of the series saw Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer put on trial and sent to prison for violating a good Samaritan law. While audience in the 90s adore these characters and obsessed over their outrageous narcissistic behavior, Larry saw them as contemptuous and felt that they simply had to be punished. That's pretty weird, considering all four main characters on Seinfeld were based on real people. One of them, Jerry Seinfeld, is playing a fictional version of himself. Seinfeld is a perfectly written, expertly plotted sitcom with dozens of memorable episodes. But is it also a terrifying vision of one man's splintered identity? Let's dive into the existential muck in another edition of Critical Brain. Jonah, what is your favorite episode of Seinfeld? You know, it's funny. I, I, I was trying to think that when I knew we were doing this episode, you know, I think of Seinfeld in moments more than I do of episodes. Uh, and uh, because it does feel like a, you know, a sketch show in that way. And some of them are as simple as, uh, say, the Frogger episode. All it really is is a move that George does. And I think about this move a lot where he can't push the Frogger like out of like the divot in the road. And then he like puts his hand up. Like his last, his last shot at like trying to stop the truck from coming and destroying the Frogger is to put his hand up and try and stop the truck with his hand and then like dodging out of the way. All right, quick, get this thing back in the pizzeria. George, they closed up. I need an outlet. A what? Holes, I need holes. Outside of the Frogger storyline, I don't remember what happens in that episode. Yeah, that's a good point. But I will never forget the episode where Kramer and Newman are going to take the the bottles to Michigan so they can make slightly more money off of the recycling fees. But do you know what else happens in that episode? No, I don't. And that's kind of the uh, the the joy of the show in my head. I'll put it up, you know, with Letterkenny in that way, where it's like I don't really re remember specific Letterkenny episodes, but I do remember parts because it is kind of one of those sitcoms that is a sketch show. This is, I think, intrinsic to the sitcom too because. It's natural that things are going to start to run into each other and blur together because sitcoms take place essentially in the same locations every week. When you watch a Seinfeld episode, it's you're going to end up at Monk's, you're going to end up in Jerry's apartment, and you're going to end up in someone's apartment, you know, that's basically just a redress of a standing set. You're not going to get a lot of variations on the theme. And I think that's what creates this sort of kind of cosmic stew to borrow a phrase from I think you should leave of storylines and plots and, and jokes. It's just, I don't know, like every episode looks exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the comfort to that. And it's a uh, very much, um, you know, sitcoms just to kind of think about what these are. These are really just, you know, the most popular versions of stage plays. Yeah. That's essentially what the honeymooners was, which is one of the early examples of this format was you have multiple cameras. They do their things on the stage and then they call it quits. And that's what sitcoms were for a long time 
up until and then a few years past Seinfeld ending, sitcoms were stage plays filmed in front of a live studio audience. And do you remember the sitcom Rock? I loved Rock. Oh, man. Charles S. Dutton on Fox. Yeah. Yeah. And th- those were all stage actors, like old school stage actors. And they started doing a thing where like they realized that their tapings for the sitcom were like flawless because all these people were trained to just know their lines and hit their marks and do all the stuff they need to do from just doing, you know, uh, stage plays. And so they started doing Rock Live. And I remember being so excited. I was like, they're like, you never know what's going to happen because it's live and it was like no different because these all these actors were professionals. I am fascinated by the idea of the stage actor and how they transition to sitcoms because when you look at the cast of Seinfeld, you got a stand-up comedian who has no acting training. He's really just doing himself and and doing his his shtick with other actors around him. You've got Julie Louis-Dreyfus who was a trained sketch comedian who ended up on SNL for a few seasons and then transitions to sitcoms uh, with Seinfeld. But the outlier in all of this is Jason Alexander. Well, I just got back from swimming in the pool and the water was cold. Uh, You mean shrinkage? Yes. He was a stage actor, right? Stage actor. Yes, trained stage actor. For me, George was the standout character in every single way. Because of, I think, his adept acting ability, his ability to communicate in that Frogger episode, the defiance of the hand and then the acceptance of mortality where he jumps out of the fray. (laughs) George is the perfect sitcom character, in my opinion. He had the most dynamics, too. He had he changed frequently and the most within an episode, but throughout the series, he's the one that like, and like, you can only really do that when you have such an amazing actor. It, it wouldn't have been George if it wasn't Jason Alexander. Well, my favorite Seinfeld episode of all time is the episode where George's fiance dies. Susan dies from the, uh, the tainted glue on the envelope. And I had never in my life seen a television program where characters were so cavalier about mortality and about death. Yeah. And George is kind of sad, but not really. Yeah, it's like they're all just kind of thrown off. That's like, they're not even sad or like shocked. They're just thrown off. It's a real, huh. That's like what it is. Just everyone going, huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a what a terrible man. What a terrible, terrible man. And who, what, what, what could have birthed a terrible character like that, I wonder? I wonder how parenting played a role in George Costanza becoming a monster. I wonder if we had a segment where we could talk about his parents. You think that you are the number one dad? All right, guys, it's time for another edition of Galaxy Dads. Seinfeld is a show littered with dads. It's odd that there are this many dads on this show. Let's start with the most important dad of them all. There's Jerry's dad, George's dad. And uh, they play a big role in this show. There's a lot of characters who have parents and we see the depraved nature of these parents. So let's start with the most important one of them all. Jerry Stiller playing Frank Costanza, arguably one of the best characters on the entire show. George, Festivus is your heritage. It's part of who you are. That's why I hate it. But also a, a real mean bastard that Frank Costanza 
to the point where he invents a, a holiday specifically to express his grievances with his family members. Festivus, of course, one of the great Seinfeld episodes. Frank Costanza really is, it's it's a guy that's like never addressed his trauma and no one's called him on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That seems about right for every dad in America. <laughs> He's a terrible dad. He sees every man, I think, even George, as a threat. <laughs> yes, yes. They're all they're all trying to ruin his life, and which is why he has to he has to grapple with everyone in that holiday he's invented. Because Christmas is a holiday for uh, enjoying yourself uh, ostensibly, but it really isn't in most American families. It is a an excuse for people to get drunk and scream at each other and let it all hang out. You know, it's a dark holiday, and that's what Festivus and Frank Costanza really illustrate. I have to give Frank a four as a dad. I think he's not a terrible father, but he certainly made George an obnoxious, self-involved, impossible-to-love human being. Yeah, I, I'm going to, I'll go with you right there and say maybe even a three, Frank stands on the Galaxy Dad scale. That's fair. I think, I think three is a good number. Let's move on to Jerry's father, Morty Seinfeld. Take the pen and the scotch tape and get the hell out of here. Listen, do you think I give a damn? Ah! Never that guy. Morty played famously by multiple actors, but the the Morty that you remember most is probably the Morty that we meet when we go to Del Boca Vista, where Jerry gets involved with the uh, local politics of the retirement community. What did you think of Morty Seinfeld? You know, you can really see that he didn't really like to get into conflict, and uh, and that really shows in Jerry as someone who just kind of observes. Uh, which gave Jerry the career of being a comedian who uh, does the uh, observational humor because of someone who doesn't engage. Because every time Morty does try and engage, it just goes badly. And so I'm going to have to give Morty just probably, because like the way he has gave Jerry what he wanted, which is a career in comedy. So I'm going to have to give him a six because he's not great. It was almost by default that uh, he was a good dad. Yeah, I, I was thinking six too. It's like, it's it's better than average. It's not below average. It's fine. I 100% agree with you that if Morty was not this conflict-averse kind of weaselly guy, that Jerry would never have become a comedian. Yeah, I mean, but part of being an adult is forgiving your parents for things they didn't mean to do. Exactly, and I don't think Jerry would ever forgive Morty for being a bad dad, but that's a sitcom. Like, as soon as people have actual breakthroughs and actually, like, succeed at growth, it's no longer a sitcom. I'm sorry, Ted Lasso fans. You're supposed to be the same miserable person every week. You don't watch the show. You're not allowed to talk about Ted Lasso to me, okay? All right, fine. No, no more Lasso talk. We're not doing a Ted Lasso episode. It's not happening. We should because it's a great show. Okay, well, you could tell that to uh, your mailman walking, buddy, because we're not talking about it. <laughs> this is a show littered with bad dads. Yeah. Just like life. Hey, there's no guidebook to being a good dad. You know, that, that should be a line of something. <laughs> I agree. I want to talk about the series finale of Seinfeld and compare it to Peep Show, which if you haven't seen Peep Show, it's a British sitcom. The creator of Succession, Jesse Armstrong, was the co-creator of Peep Show. One of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life and very much similar to Seinfeld and that these are shows about friendships that go nowhere. And the end of Peep Show... There's a kidnapping, bad things happen, but at the end, nothing changes. The famous last line of Peep Show, 
I simply must get rid of him. <laughs> this is a show that's about these two people who live together who are not really friends, but are in love with each other. Platonically or romantically, it's hard to say. And Seinfeld is similar to that in that it is about these characters who despise each other, but cannot escape the gravity of each other. But in the series finale of Seinfeld, they go to prison. They're punished by Larry David, the writer of the final episode. I loved it. I loved uh, the ending. But I do remember at the time when it aired being upset because of how much of a clip show it was. Yeah. I remember being so upset, so upset that they didn't just do the show, that they had this construct to go and do a clip show. Then like liking the story of what happened and how it happened and they were all going to finally be okay. Things were going to work out and because they were dicks, it didn't work out. And I remember thinking that was so great. This goes back to a favorite topic of mine, which is American comedy versus British comedy. And uh, Seinfeld had to end with these loathsome characters being punished. They had to be brought low. They had to go to prison. And that is an American idea of this is wrong. And they must be put in a position where they pay for their crimes. And Peep Show, arguably some worse behavior on that show. They do not get punished. Not once do they really get punished. British people don't believe that there is any, any moral justice in the world. But on Seinfeld, there must be an accountability for their behavior. And I always found that both amusing and strange. Yeah, you know, I think about the spiritual successor uh, more so than Curb to Seinfeld is always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. That idea of just like, you know, Seinfeld brought up as a, what if we just followed jerks around? And then, you know, always sunny was just like, what if they were worse? Yep. What if they were worse? Kirby Enthusiasm is really about one man's problems. It's about Larry David being a rich person in Los Angeles. But always sunny is about, like you said, these people who are true monsters. Like they, It's gone from Seinfeld being about social faux pas and people maybe doing things to slight other people to full-on sociopathic behavior on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And that's very funny. I really think they should never end it. I like the idea of Always Sunny just continuing on and seeing like, it's like what are like the long-term effects of this kind of life? Shows can go on forever. Seinfeld kind of ended arbitrarily. Yes. It wasn't that they, that they were truly done it was Jerry was ready to move on. It had been almost a decade. Larry David had left uh, after season seven. But Seinfeld, as an idea, has endured because it is on all the time. And so people are constantly imagining what would Jerry do? What would Elaine do? What would be a funny position for them to be in? And I think that's because the greatest sitcoms, and especially Seinfeld, are all about what's going on in your head. I honestly think Seinfeld in a lot of ways, is just four characters having uh, a conversation that is what Jerry would have himself. Like, it's his internal monologue expressed through four people. In some ways, hear me out, Jonah, uh, Seinfeld is essentially just a hallucination of Jerry Seinfeld. Well, hold on. Wait, okay, sorry. You seriously think Seinfeld is a hallucination? How often do you see Jerry's bedroom? Or his bathroom? Why are all of these characters magically drawn to his apartment in the first place? The way people move and react in sitcoms is unnatural, but Seinfeld often calls attention to its artificiality. 
Season four's meta arc and the Curb reunion are especially telling examples of this. But Seinfeld has tons of stories that take place outside of Jerry's apartment. There's Monk, Elaine's office, uh, Yankee Stadium, Kramer's apartment. I mean, they even go to India in one episode. Yes, yes, I get that. But what I'm saying is that the show was an expression of Jerry's various personalities. Even if Larry David was a co-creator, these characters, the slovenly buffoon, the moochy neighbor, and the focused careerist yearning for a healthy relationship are all basically just reflections of the man, Jerry Seinfeld. These characters can barely stand each other, have very little in common, and yet they are all drawn to each other in severely unhealthy ways. Why are they stuck together, Jonah? Because in every single episode, Jerry Seinfeld is essentially talking to himself. Uh, Dave, oh my, oh my God, you, um... Turned into a beautiful angel? No, 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 you, you, you pissed on the couch, you, you, you just peed your pants. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh, I'll just flip the cushion, it's fine. That ought to do it, uh, just like new, no one will notice. Uh, I, man, I, I... I, I'm not sure I'm going to have to listen to some old episodes, but I think this is the first time Galaxy Burning has ever made someone pee their pants. The first, but not the last, my friend. Wait until our guest, Jesse David Fox, joins us after the break to test my theory. You're embarrassing us in front of all of our new listeners. Get used to it, listeners. This is what the show is like every single week. This is the show. This is the show, Jerry. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We have soothed our minds after the last segment by screaming Serenity Now 50 times into a mirror. And wouldn't you know it, out of that mirror crawled our esteemed guest, Seinfeld expert, and host of the Good One podcast, Jesse David Fox. Jesse, welcome to the show. This is a long time coming. I've thought about having you on the show many times and rightfully said no every time. But In the 17 years we've been doing this podcast. <laughs> Jesse's name comes up a lot, mostly about not being on the show, but here he is anyway. Hi, Jesse. Well, it's nice to be thought of and discredited, but I'm also <laughs> I'm just so honored to be here. Finally, finally. Every, every week I download this show and it's like, is this going to be the week I'm on? And it never is. I feel that way about your podcast about comedians. <laughs> <laughs> Once I have yeah. my good one, then I'll reach out. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I'm still waiting for a good one from you, at least on this show. <laughs> First question for you, Jesse. <laughs> where does Seinfeld take place? Inside New York City or inside the mind of Jerry Seinfeld? It's a great question. In my opinion, if it's okay, I'd say all of the above. It's set in New York City, that's set in Los Angeles, and then in that, it is set in Larry David's mind, and then Larry David's mind lives in Jerry Seinfeld's mind. <laughs> so it's sort of like a Russian nesting doll of anxiety, is what you're saying. Yes, it's exact. It is literally a Russian nesting doll of anxiety. That is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, let's break it down then. If, if we're going to talk about this show as a representation of someone's personality traits or anxieties or what have you, what do they represent? What do each of these characters represent in terms of the human psyche? So let's start with Jerry Seinfeld, not the man, the character on the show. I mean, I think Jerry in many ways represents Jerry of the like detached observer of things happening with no investment on in anything that happens in the world. 
she's a very neutral character. I mean, I guess he has the his voice modulations, but I feel like he does not have as strong feelings or expressions of self. And I feel like he represents a way of interacting the world of a complete, bemused, objective, disinterested party. Is it fair to say that that is the platonic ideal of the comedian? That it is a person who is able to detach from society, observe society, and then comment on society? He's a distilled manifestation of that part of a, a type of comedian of they, when they go to a party, all they're doing is, I am at a party. It's just, I'm at a party. This is a party. A party is happening. They're not partying. That does, that's not an option. It is truly, life is them doing the things and observing, and then later being like, have you ever noticed at parties, everyone else is talking and the blah, blah, and then they double dip the chip and all those, what we think of Seinfeld, Seinfeldian observations. I think that I think that's what it captures. And I think it makes sense that he's a comedian. If he wasn't a comedian on the show, it'd be so weird. Yeah, it would be unnatural and you'd be a sociopath. <laughs> you'd just be a, a demon. Okay, speaking of sociopaths, George, what does George represent to the audience? Uh, anger. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And a world that is against him. And why he represents Larry David's point of view, where it's like, Jerry is the world has no meaning whatsoever. And then Larry is, the world is actually specifically working against me it's the chip on his shoulder we'll always have. George thinks the world is a vampire. <laughs> Set the drain! This is a podcast about the 90s. I think so. I think he represents a sort of 90s male anger of like, everything is against me despite my constant success that I've just back into. So would you say, I mean, based on Jonah's reference of the Smashing Pumpkins and, and talking about anti-authoritarian uh, attitudes, that George is kind of a an avatar for grunge culture. <laughs> <laughs> he wears a lot of flannel shirts. He does. Yeah, there's the big Gore-Tex coat that he wears that I think that kind of like neo-grunge fashion people wear now. Also very grunge in his uh, vernacular where it's uh, loud, quiet, loud. A lot of the time with George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, maybe. Am I wrong? I love that. I'm fully convinced that that is the full inspiration, which was the, when they're creating the show, they're like, it's going to be set in New York, but it's really about Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Linklater had a lot of Seinfeld. Cameron Crowe had a lot of Seinfeld. This is very much of a time where people were so it's like, what if people just talked? Seinfeld did premiere in 89, correct, Jesse? As Seinfeld Chronicles was 1989. Yeah, so it definitely predated a lot of the, the things we're talking about, the grunge stuff. But I wonder, yeah, if that was just a happy accident that the world was ready for something where people were both grumpy and detached, but also not doing anything. Getting coffee is a plot point. That is enough where it's like they're getting coffee. They're doing something. Well, there's a lot of that, too. And like, um, like I said before, like Linklater and even like I think in an early Scorsese thing, he was talking about like how it's like he just had this conversation he wanted to shoot as a short. And then like they're like, but how do we make this interesting? Oh, we just put it in different locations. How do we make it seem like something different is happening? But we're just literally doing the same thing. Jerry likes funny people talking to each other. Like, that's ultimately, like, his show. Like, there's all these other things happen. He just likes the rhythm of talking. And, like, the show's patter is, like, to Jerry's rhythm. There's jokes in it that are literally, like, his stand-up, but the characters are, just, are trading lines. Like, I think that is just something he loves hearing. He loves the music of a person going back and forth and then the scene ending. But you are touching on the thing that... I'm trying to get at, which is it feels like these conversations are not conversations. They are monologues. Yeah. 
it is a person, one person having a monologue. And that's why when I watch this show now that it's like on Netflix and all that stuff, I could see that it's really just the same person saying the same thing to themselves in their own head. And that leads me to our next character that we should talk about, which is Elaine. Elaine is the only woman in the the main cast of Seinfeld. And she was added after the fact, after the pilot. Elaine ended up being a wonderful addition to the show rather than like a Poochie style appendage. So I want I wanna ask you, what what does Elaine represent? I mean, I would argue if I remember from the book about the show that eventually they had a breakthrough when they realized, oh, we'll just write her like everybody else and just like we'll give her storylines we wrote for George and we'll give her storyline, not for Kramer. Kramer obviously is his own thing. But like, I think what, when I think of Elaine, especially when I rewatched the show, when I rewatched, when I watched it the first time and when I was like a kid, I was like, she's the woman, she's doing woman stories. Yeah, the sponge worthy stuff. They had to be a, a female character and, and Carol Liefer was a huge influence on creation and evolution of Elaine. But what I think of Elaine, it's, she is the most status driven character. She's like an intellectual. She's like, you forget that a lot of her storylines were involved. Like she, she's like a short story writer who like wanted to like get a cartoon in the New Yorker or whatever. Having affairs with John Cheever and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's much more like, I think a manifestation of their insecurities of, of the value of the thing they're doing, the status of who they are. Jerry is this kid and Elaine is this sophisticate. But then Elaine is still like an asshole like the rest of them. But like her problems are like in a much fancier culturally part of the world. And I think of that as like she is a sort of a different sort of insecurity and a different manifestation of insecurity, I guess, is more of that of like, am I value am my valuable am my what am i doing how am i contribute to it where like george's insecurity is much more visceral and much more like low status but i think that having a disposal for those types of jokes there is a point where elaine sells out essentially you point out that she was trying to write short stories and you know be kind of a literary figure and she dressed in a certain kind of new york bohemian almost like a Delia's catalog (laughs) style. (laughs) And then at some point, you know, I think it's around the Peterman storyline when she becomes the, she starts writing for the catalog and working for Jay Peterman. She starts wearing business suits and she starts dressing in a different way. Her hair is let down. She's wearing more elaborate makeup. She's dating putty. It's a totally different character in a lot of ways. She becomes harder, as you pointed out. She becomes status obsessed. She becomes more of a, a hustler and less of like, the kind of like manic pixie dream girl that she was early in this in the show. I mean, we've seen that. That's that we've seen that a lot. And like, I, I think people we know as you like, you know, careen into your 30s and mid 30s. It's like you see people start to go, I have to now be an adult. Yeah. And I think she really represented that more than any other character of that. Like she was trying so hard to break out of this, like, just cruising with her friends all the time. I mean, there literally was a storyline where she was looking for glasses. She, there was a person she saw and she wanted his glasses. And that was like, and that was enough. Where, like, I think the aesthetic of being an adult, and I think that created a certain amount of tension with the group, right? Because they're all idiots. And she thought she was the high status one, right? Like, eventually, first she, Jerry was the only one who made any money because he was a successful comedian, ostensibly. Then eventually she got a job and had a career. And then though George worked for the Yankees, she became the person she always thought she was, which was like successful, 
fancy <laughs> and they're a bunch of like jerks who are like a waste of their time. Well, the, the biggest waste of, of her time is probably Kramer. Kramer is the least successful of them all inexplicably has an apartment in uh, Manhattan that he can afford to live in by himself. Despite not having a job, he has all kinds of hustles and, and grifts, but he doesn't have a life. He doesn't have real friends. I mean, he has lots of characters that he'll reference all the time. Bob Sacamano. He's more successful than Bob Sacamano. Yeah. <laughs> more successful than Crazy Joe Devola. Crazy Joe. Yeah, there's all these characters that are like circling around Kramer's insane life but he doesn't actually have friends. What does Kramer represent, though? I mean, it's one way to say, like, it's an id-based life, but it's also just a completely opposite of Jerry's life, where Jerry's hyper-observant and he only is in his head, where Kramer is just sort of living a life. He's just sort of flowing with life. He's, like, driven by the, his sexual magnetism. Or- <laughs> <laughs> the Kavorka. The yeah. Kavorka. He's, like, has no self-awareness whatsoever and there's something really freeing about that like though jerry's not a hyper neurotic character he is very aware of how he's presented and how he interacts with the world kramer is just going about the world and he does not necessarily care and there is there is a reason why they admire him like the reason they hang around him is that i think he's he's in a way also like a manic pixie dream girl yeah this this is um i think reinforcing my theory about this show, which is that it really is a monologue, because I think we've described four characters that all serve different purposes in our own minds. The observer, the righteous anger of George, Elaine's status-obsessed social climbing, and Kramer just chaos. The id, doing whatever you want. <laughs> I think everybody struggles with those, those four feelings, and bringing them together is how you create a human being. So I think there is something to what I'm saying. But there is one character we have not talked about. Maybe the most important character on Seinfeld, the city of New York. I I was like, who? And then I was like, I know where this is going to (laughs) go. It's like a character. New New York is a character on Seinfeld. And I think it's, it's certainly not the last sitcom, great sitcom to be based in New York. But it is one of the last sitcoms where New York was, it was crucial to the show being set there. I think 30 Rock followed that tradition. New York is a character on 30 Rock. It, it couldn't be said anywhere else because of not just the fact that it's about making an SNL-like TV show. It's also about New Yorker problems. I mean, where else are you going to have a, uh, a storyline that involves a subway hero? Exactly. <laughs> yes. I do want to ask, do you think there's ever going to be another show that is going to capture New York quite in this kind of way? I know Girls and Broad City were both set in New York, but those were more niche kind of cable shows. Seinfeld was the biggest television show in America. The cultural significance of Seinfeld is hard to overstate. So do you think we'll ever get back to that where New York is really this cultural capital? You know, it's interesting because it's when they're pitching the show and when they did pilot, the, the main note was this is this show to New York. And by that they meant, are these characters too Jewish? And, <laughs> uh, which is why all the actors are Jewish and all of them are performing a idea of what Judaism looks like, but two of the characters are Italian. (laughs) And I think what is happening is one, there was a monocultural idea of New York, which is like, it's where these Jews live and talk to each other. (laughs) That also is breaking down as New York gets more diverse, but also like these, as television becomes more fractured, 
you get depictions of New York that are much smaller, that they're when they are depicting New York, they are not being like, this is what New York looks like. I think like Broad City did an episode about a street and there's like, this is a street, this is the street we live on. And Girls was very much like, this is Brooklyn, we don't, you know, and even like Aquafina, I think is more about Queens. Like I think the assumption, the sort of Seinfeldian confidence to be like, we're going to make a show that's about New York City, but it's only going to be about people who live within four blocks of the <laughs> other one side of each other. I can't imagine someone doing that. I think it, what you're saying speaks to the insular nature of the show. The show is about characters who live in the same neighborhood, uh, in the same like four block radius and do the same things every week. I thought they made up the idea of Kramer getting lost at, at the corner of second and second. I was like, there's no city in the world that will be Two and two. That doesn't make sense to me. When I found out that that's how New York works, I was very confused. Yeah, the idea of avenues and streets and in Queens, they've got like numbers uh, and then a dash and then more numbers. I'm like, what is this? There are too many numbers. The, the subways are numbered. The, the They've got letters too. No, pick one. Stop this. Streets, avenues. What are you going to do? I don't know. Let's just have a both. Uh, both and there's numbers. Numbers. Before this becomes just New York versus L.A., it is a grid system that is incredibly intuitive. But I understand L.A. has like four streets that go the entire way and then everything's off of it. <laughs> well, I think everybody hates where they live. That's that's just a fact. And Seinfeld is about hating the place where you live. And there is a sense of purgatory to it. Which is again, I think, reinforcing what I'm what I'm trying to say about the show is that you you feel trapped when you're watching Seinfeld. I think Purgatory is exactly it. Like to me, this show, at least Jerry's version of the show, is this is waiting for Godot. These people are stuck reliving the same conversations about nothing. It's not a show where it's a show about nothingness. Nothing happens. There's the idea of Jerry put a picture of the Earth seen from space in the writers' room to explain to people, this doesn't matter. What we're doing is just, this is just our lot, and then we're going to be dead in 100 years or whatever, and no one's going to care about this. Yeah. Larry's show, everyone gets in each other's way, and it's like these complicated plots. Jerry doesn't care about the complicated plots. <laughs> Jerry just wants these people to have nothing happen to them, that they go through all these journeys, and then they're in the exact same spot. It's like, to me, it's like the Chinese restaurant episode is like a, a further distillation of the show, of just like, there's no plot. Like, literally, it's them waiting for their table. And even when their table is called, it's the wrong... Like, that sort of complete meaninglessness, I think, is... Captures the sort of, like, darkest part of the show. We're all trapped on the same rock sort of thing. So isn't that weird and funny that we're all stuck here together in our own form of purgatory, which is life? By bringing up Larry, I, I want to talk about our last question, which is... If this is Jerry's world and Jerry's experience filtered through these characters, what is Larry David's role here? Because Larry David famously leaves after season seven, doesn't come back until the finale, which people hate. It's, it's still reviled and famously became the subject of the Curb Your Enthusiasm Seinfeld reunion season. Larry goes on to great success doing Curb, becomes a star in his own right. And you see serious differences between these two shows. There's similarities, obviously, but Curb is just meaner, I think, and has more contempt for its characters than Seinfeld ever did. So what did Larry bring to the show, and how do, how do we reconcile this kind of theory 
the, the grand theory of Seinfeld with the fact that it is not an auteur's vision. It is a collaborative vision between two similar but different men. The show got written very differently than almost every sitcom ever, which is essentially writers pitched an idea. They wrote a full script. Then they gave it to Larry and Jerry. And then no, no one knows what happens. They just like fully put whatever their spin on it. But if you look at what happens when Larry leaves, all the plotting becomes much similar and much broader and like much bit focused. There's not these things where it all comes together and crashes together. It's like the bizarro world thing where bizarro Jerry, where it's like, this is like barely set in a real world. This is just a conceit. It's almost like a sketch. You have to remember the show's called Seinfeld. It's Seinfeld show. They're doing the show because of Jerry Seinfeld. And then Jerry brings Larry in. And then he's almost like, it's like Jerry's the god of this world. And then Larry is like the facilitator of this world. And he's moving the pieces around. He's Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings. So I think Larry is the person who's like, it's funny to call him humanistic because obviously the show is so anti-feelings. But he cares about human scale problems and he moves people around. And there's more plots about dating and like people are angrier. And I think that's the Larry thing of how can people get in each other's way, right? And I think Jerry, people have no relationship to him. He's like completely on his world. He's he's not interacting with them. And I think Larry is the clashing of different egos and and seeing how he can do it and how it all relates. And I think, I don't think Jerry cares as much about this sort of, that the thing that you see in Curb Your Enthusiasm ending, that perfect thing where the A plot and the C plot and everything comes together and it's like one thing. I don't know if they did that as much when the when Larry left. Yeah, it, it was more, like you said, idea-based and, and very sketchy um, because it's not necessarily about how annoying it is to be around other people. It's about how ridiculous the world is. And I guess that's, these are two separate coping mechanisms for for life, which is either nothing matters or everything matters so much and I am going to like take this rock and press it into a diamond just because I'm so mad. There's a bit of like a, a, a trying to attain Zen in Jerry's life that every, and everything gets in the way of that. But there is something very much where he's always trying to find some kind of peace. And I think finding humor, which is also like a very kind of like a Buddhist mentality is finding the humor in these uh, small irritations Maybe that's my galaxy brain take on the whole thing is that is that like the world is keeping Jerry from uh, attaining supremacy, you know? You know, Jerry's been meditating since he's like 18 where there is a feeling of like he's trying to meditate and then these people keep on interrupting his. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a very uh, Los Angeles attitude trying to find peace and it being it being impossible, even though you should be able to. There's all kinds of other things happening around you. Whereas I think Larry's mentality is more what I associate with New York, which is this is pissing me off. I'm mad and I, I, I'm really comfortable being mad. And where I am most useful to the world is in expressing my anger. The culture of New York is just people in different accents screaming at each other. I can't think of a more New York person than Jesse David Fox, our guest today. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us to talk about Seinfeld. I feel like we really broke it down and figured it out. I think we solved it. We solved it. We cracked the nut. If you are listening to this on the Good One podcast feed, 
you know, listen to our show more. <laughs> but if you're listening to it on the Galaxy Brain feed, well, listen to Jesse's show more. I mean, it's all, this is what it's all about, isn't it? This is the LA and us coming out. Hey, just like support your friends and be nice to each other. And as a New Yorker, I say, you have to pick one. There's not enough room for two podcasts. There's only room for one. All right, Jesse, go away now. Bye. Each week, we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here is one now. Hey, guys. Uh, just started listening to the podcast, went through it all and all that stuff, and got through the Space Jam episode, and it got me wondering, what happened to Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Where is the love for a movie that was like one of the biggest movies of the 80s, you know, spawned a theme park attraction, was one of the biggest movies of the 80s and early 90s. And I know aside from all the corporate stuff and the reasons why we don't see it as much anymore, but where's the love for it that it was there, that it had, that people had for it? You know, you have gone through like the Hocus Pocus stuff that everyone loves about it now, the Goofy movie, the reverence for that. What what, what happened? Where's the love for this movie that is one of the best technical movies of all time and just one of the best movies of all time? Anyway, thanks. Later. <laughs> well, that's my time. That's I. You know, it is. A, it is an amazing movie. It is the spiritual sequel to Chinatown. Roof Frame Roger Rabbit is a is an absolute classic, and it is singular in itself. Here's my theory about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You, sir, mentioned two movies that people have this deep reverence for. This borderline ironic appreciation for a goofy movie, which I loved uh, when I was a kid. I'd watch that thing all the time. Powerline, great stuff, whatever, wonderful. Hocus Pocus, I get why people like it. These are movies that are really for children. <laughs> They're for children, okay? There's, that's not an insult. It, these are movies that are for kids. They are very chaste in a lot of ways. They don't have salacious material in them. They're for kids. Who framed Roger Rabbit? is kind of dark. There's cartoon murder. There's sexuality that is suggestive, but effective sexuality, where you really are like, hmm, that made me feel something. I'm not sure what it was. I'm eight, but I felt something, and I need to explain and explore this idea. It's not a movie that's necessarily fun all the time. It is not a thing you can ironically dust off every once in a while and be like, this is my identity. Make a super yucky shop T-shirt about this. Yeah, it's a little dark. You know, it's about the dismantling of public transportation in basically what happened in L.A. because of, of Huntington. You know, it's a proper film noir. It is not a fun romp all the time, even though it is very funny. It is adult in a lot of ways, and so I think because it is in the middle of being both a children's movie and a movie that is explicitly for adults and has adult themes and ideas in it, it's hard for people to create the cult of nostalgia around it the way that they can a goofy movie or something. But if you want to call in and, and tell us about your various favorite kids' movies, feel free. We'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on that. Or next week's very much not a kids' movie, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. Also, don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a new listener hearing this for the first time on the Good One podcast feed, be sure to subscribe to Galaxy Brains so you never miss another episode. Why would you want to miss an episode? <laughs> 
That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're finding out what that mouth do in Venom. Let there be carnage. What that mouth do, Jonah? Please. We know exactly what that mouth do. It kissed carnage very softly. Oh, it better. In the meantime, how about we get some credits? Dave? Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautham Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plain and Russ Frushnick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melanzik who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave, Lord of the Manor and King of the Castle. Giddy up. <laughs>